Hello and welcome to Just a Thought Podcast, episode 18. I'm Corey Tinkham. Unfortunately, there's a lot of missing persons, cases, in our country and around the world. One man, however, has found certain cases that display some very, very odd patterns. He began investigating these cases over a decade ago and has quite the collection of strange, baffling missing persons cases, most of which remain unsolved. Today's topic, missing 411. Very strange. again and thanks for joining me for episode 18. This one is super super weird, very very bizarre. If you're familiar with the missing 411 cases then you'll know, you know what I mean. Very very strange. We're going to go into a lot of the cases, talk about some possibilities of what it could be, possibilities of what it can might not be or can't be. It, it could go in a lot of directions this one. It's very very strange. And again, most of these remain unsolved. Most of the folks that have gone missing in these cases were either found dead or are presumed to be deceased. So it's pretty unfortunate. A little disturbing. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, this involves missing children. And it's, it's pretty can be pretty disturbing at different points. So that said, we will forge ahead. There's a man by the name of David Politis, and he is the author of all the missing 411 books. I believe there are nine books in his series now, so they have really taken off. He was a police officer for about 20 years before all this happened. He worked with many investigators over the years, and then he got into the tech industry, of all things, and but had always been investigating various things, kept in contact with a lot of his old uh, police force friends, you know, stayed in contact with them. And he was at a national park in 2009 investigating something unrelated to this. And he noticed, he claims he noticed that some of the park employees were following, following him around uh, at different points throughout the day and eyeballing him, watching him. He thought it was kind of strange, it was noticeable to him, but he really didn't pay too much attention. That evening, there's a knock on his cabin door, and it is two park rangers that are off-duty. And they said, hey, Mr. Politis, sorry you know, to bother you, we know who you are, we know the work, investigative work you have done, and we would like to talk to you. So a little more background on David Politis. 
At this point, he had done a lot of research into the Bigfoot phenomena. He actually had a book published about Bigfoot. So that's how they knew him, and they said, hey, we'd like to talk. So he invites them in, and they sit down, and one of the rangers begins to tell some stories. Not so much stories, just that he had noticed there was a lot of missing persons cases at a particular national park park where he worked. And he ended up being transferred to another park. I think it was Yosemite National Park. And he noticed the same thing there. And then yet a third park he was transferred to, and he noticed even more cases at this park. And he just thought, man, you know, it's kind of bizarre. Anytime it was brought up, it was very hush-hush. The Park Service really wouldn't talk much about it. And they just asked Mr. Politis to, you know, please investigate this. If you have time, look into it. We think there's something just kind of strange going on, and maybe it should get some attention. So Mr. Politis doesn't think about it. He says, okay, you know, maybe, and, you know, sees them off. And the next day he gets to thinking about it. The park ranger gave him a couple names, so he calls some old investigator buddies and says, hey, I'm not in front of the computer, I'm actually out in the woods. This was 2009. He says, would you mind to run a couple of these names? I'd like to know a little bit about these missing persons cases. So that's where it all started. And he did notice that at national parks around the country, there were these clusters of missing persons cases. And he traced it all the way back to about the mid-1850s. This goes way back. Now, it gets a little involved because at this point, he's just noticing that there's a lot of missing people, or a lot of people going missing in national forests and national parks. So at this point, it's caught his attention. So he starts to get into really digging into these cases. Now... To make a long story short, and there's plenty of interviews with David Politis that you can find, and he will talk about this in a little more detail, but he ends up looking at thousands, I think he says five to 6,000 different cases throughout the last 100 years or so, and he's able to rule out a whole bunch of them, whether it was an animal attack or a voluntary disappearance, somebody just wanted to disappear, or an accident. I mean, these are national parks. People are outside. They're hiking. They're climbing rock formations. They're participating in outdoor sports. So obviously, the amount of people being injured and killed, or injured and stranded and and, and succumbing to the elements, the odds of this happening are far greater than other places. So naturally, you would see kind of maybe these little clusters. But upon looking at the details of these cases, there were, there were some that stood out where there, there was no real logical explanation for this person to go missing. They were with people, close to people. There was no sign of struggle, no screams. It's as if they literally just disappeared. It's very, very strange. So over time... David Politis kind of gets a 
list of criteria that have to be met for it to be considered a case that he'll look into or a case that will fall into the 411 category, if you will. So there's several things. And Politis refers to these things as profile points. So not every case has these. Some, case have, some cases have several of these profile points, but at least one or all of these are found in each case. And also things such as animal attacks, uh, abduction by a, a human, these things are eliminated because there's either A, no evidence for it, or as you'll see when we discuss the cases, it's just not possible. And, and you, that will make a little more sense as we go along. But So these profile points, one thing that, that David Politis noticed is that these disappearances often happen while people are picking berries off different kinds of bushes. Picking berries. It sounds so very b- bizarre, and it is. And he says, I don't know what it means, but it has popped up enough that it seems to warrant mentioning. It's, it, it happens enough People are going missing or in a party where someone goes missing while they're picking berries. Seems extremely nonsensical, but he says, this is, look, this is occurring enough that it may have some sort of significance. I don't know what it is, but it just may. So that's one thing that was noted. These disappearances also occur a lot in swamps. And some people are found, particularly kids, have been found alive in swampy areas that it's very, very difficult to get to. It's impossible for, say, a two-year-old child, we will talk about such a case, to get to this location on their own and have no recollection or some very strange explanations on how they got there, if they remember at all. It's a very strange, so swampy areas. Uh, again, no animal attacks. An abnormal amount of disabled and mentally challenged people disappear. Conversely, highly educated intellectuals seem to go missing more often than, you know, say the average Joe. Canine units, when used to investigate or search for a missing person, they will literally not get a scent. They will walk in circles and lay down more often than not with these cases. Now, you have to understand, some of these cases were investigated 50 years ago, but it's reported that, you know, the dogs, they they couldn't get a scent, and they turned in circles and laid down. Very strange behavior. So that these, these items are some of the things that David Politis is looking for when he's combing through these cases. Moving on. Most people, if found, are found near creeks and rivers. 90% of those found won't talk about what happened. Either they're disabled, they don't remember, or they're just, you know, simply too young. And that's an, another thing. Is there's a lot of children from about 2 to 14 that go missing. And there's, there's cases that fall into this criteria with all age groups, but it's really concentrated with 2 to 14 and then elderly. You know, middle age to, to pretty old, to... Victims in their 80s. I mean, so there's, a, there's kind of a, a scale with the age. It's, you know, really young or, or, you know, older on the spectrum. 
So those all contribute to reasons why they don't talk about it. And there's more recent cases that have occurred that we will talk about where people are found, young people, young adults, when I say young adults, 30s, you know, mid-30s, who are in good health, good mental health, and they literally just can't remember. It's as if the memory has been erased. It's very, very strange. So another, another item is that if they're found, they're usually missing their shoes. Oftentimes, if they're found, and unfortunately this is when a body is found, the clothes, particularly the pants, have been removed but put back on inside out. Very, very strange. And very often, very often, when someone is found either deceased or alive, it is very often in a place that has been thoroughly searched multiple times. And this has been confirmed by witnesses who were volunteering in search parties. This has been confirmed by investigators. This has been confirmed by police officers that say, man, we searched that area five times with 200 people, uh, a helicopter, the whole thing. So very, very bizarre stuff. I'm telling you, it gets really, really, really weird. So as David Politis is digging into all this, he says, man, I really want a, a full list of people that have gone missing in national parks. So he calls the National Park Authority and asks for this list. As ex-law enforcement, he knows that there are these lists ex- exist. They have them. Well, he's told, well, we don't keep a list of missing people in national parks. He says, well, I, are you sure? Can you check again? And he's, he's not believing what he's being told, and he keeps on, and finally they say, yeah, well, we have a list, but it's going to cost you $20,000 to, to attain it. So all these bizarre things, and, and it was very difficult for him to deal with the park authority with this. Now, some of that could be said, well, it's bad publicity. We don't want people writing books about bringing attention to missing people, especially if it is a little bizarre, and they don't even know what's going on. So maybe they were a little standoffish, but David Politis has filed Freedom of Information Act uh, requests for, for documents using the Freedom of Information Act and pretty much either not gotten a reply or gotten phone calls asking questions of why he's requesting these documents, which you're not allowed to do. It's very, very weird. Something, something's going on here. So that's a little bit of the history of how it all got started. Again, his books, they're called Missing 411. They're on Amazon, and I'm definitely pushing them. They're not a sponsor or anything like that, but check them out. Crazy stuff. There's a couple documentaries uh, on YouTube as well. I watched one. It was okay. It, uh, it covered like two cases. I, it, you know... It's worth checking out, I guess, but eh, and I don't know, I don't know if, if David Politis was involved. I'm assuming he was, but I mean, it wasn't bad. But anyway, so there's a lot more to the, to the beginning of this. There's a lot more detail that I'm just not going to go into because, man, it would take forever. This is already going to be a pr- pretty long episode and uh, maybe even a two-parter. So we'll, we'll see if we do two parts or not. I'll start now with the cases. We're going to start with, they're going to go, I'm going to jump from, from more recent cases to cases that happened 50 years ago, 
just kind of back and forth to illustrate some of these criteria that keep happening over and over and over that you kind of see a pattern. It's very, very strange. So the first case I want to talk about is one that kind of just illustrates how quickly and quietly this occurs. So that this is, this is a case that happened pretty much in front of everybody and it just, this person just disappears. It's, it's so weird. So it's the case of Stacy Eras. And she was only 14 years old and it was July 25th in 1981. Her father, herself, and six others are going horseback riding in Yosemite National Park. And they're riding deep into the park. Deep into the wilderness. They're about five hours into their trip. And they come across these cabins that are out there for people who are either hiking or horseback riding and passing through. And you can actually stay at these cabins. It's right next to a lake. Very, very picturesque. So they all stop there and they're all sitting or standing in front of these cabins. Stacy says to her father, she's a photographer, she says, I'm going to go take pictures of the lake. There is a man that is with him. He's 72 years old. He says, well, I'll walk with you. So Stacy and this, this elderly gentleman, they walk down to the lake. They're being watched. People can see them. They see the elderly man sit down on a rock as Stacy begins to take pictures of the lake. Stacy decides to move a little closer down to the lake, which is surrounded by woods, and the man is sitting on the rock watching her. And he sees, she walks out of sight of the rest of the party, but he is watching her and he sees her walk up to these trees and just taking pictures, walks into this thicket of trees. And he waits, and he waits, and she never comes out. There's no screaming. There's no tussling. There's no change except she's just gone. So, of course, he goes back to alert her father and the rest of their party, and they get a little concerned, naturally. So, of course, they go down and they look for her. She was not any more, any more than 200 feet away at any time, at any given time. Hundreds of people begin this massive search for weeks. And the only thing they find is a camera lens. And they find that days later in the area where she went missing. Very, very bizarre. So when David Politis starts looking into this case and requesting information from the park authorities, he doesn't get anywhere. But he does get a phone call from the National Park Authority saying, why do you want information on this case? And he says, well, you know, I'm, I'm just doing an investigation. I'm, I'm looking into it, just trying to, you know, everything I'm doing is above board. And he says, well, you can't have that information. David Pilatus asks him, well, is it, a, is it a criminal investigation? Is that why? He says, nope. It's a missing in persons investigation. And David Pilatus says, well, I think I'm allowed to have that information. And the man tells him, you're not going to get it. And he was almost threatening in his tone, apparently. So there's, they're stonewalling him for some reason. And what about this case? They, her whole party, Stacy's whole party, went right down to where she, she disappeared and found nothing. No signs of a struggle, no blood, which, which is important. Remember that for animal attacks. No blood. Very weird. She was never found, unfortunately. 
But that case just goes to show how how quickly these things can occur, and not just in missing 411 cases, especially with children. Now, I know that Stacy was 14 years old, but children, really young children, it, it's, it can happen quick. And that brings me to the next case. Great Smoky Mountain National Park. A boy named Dennis Martin, he's six years old. It's June 14th, 1969, and he is with his father and grandfather and brother for a Father's Day trip, camping trip at the park. And they're, where they're at, their campsite is in an area that's wooded but then has this pretty large open field. So his father and grandfather set up some chairs. They're sitting watching the two boys play in this field. Everything's fine. It's a bright, sunny day. And remember that. Bright, sunny day. Everything's great. Another family approaches. They also have two sons. And they say, hey, do you mind if we let the boys play? And Dennis's father says, no, of course, come, you know, join us. It'll be great. He learns that that family's last name also is Martin. Just a neat little coincidence. And the boys play, they start to play hide and seek. And all the boys hide around the perimeter of this field. And Dennis's father is very protective. He's a, he's a very um, agile, very fit man. And very attentive. And he's watching his son, Dennis the youngest. He's watching him, and Dennis goes and hides behind a bush. And they're playing hide-and-seek. All the boys come out. The game is kind of has ended and coming to a close. Dennis does not come out from behind the bush. And his father watched him go behind the bush. So his father gets up and goes to you know look to see if he can find him and let him know that, hey, the game is over. Well, he's not there. There is a trail, the Appalachian Trail, actually, that runs through this particular site. He tears running down this trail trying to find his son, Dennis. And there is just no trace of him at all. And Dennis's grandfather goes back to alert the rangers. Within 30 minutes, there are 35 rangers conducting a search, and soon after, many, many more. 30 minutes after Dennis goes missing, it rains severely hard for five days nonstop. Very weird. Not weird by itself, but the fact that these weather phenomena occur when people go missing and all these other criteria are met is a little strange. So then, a, a family of four, the day that Den Dennis went missing, a family of four approaches the rangers and they say, hey, we would like to go somewhere where we might see some bear. Can you make any recommendations? They direct this family to a place called Rollins Creek. So the family takes the advice and goes to this area called Rollins Creek. And they, they're there just kind of looking around, maybe hoping to see some bear or other wildlife, and they hear a scream, which is described as a very, very loud blood-curdling scream, very deep and guttural, something they've never heard before, very strange. Shortly after that, the nine-year-old son says to his father, hey, look at that bear up there, and he points kind of up on this ridge. And the father looks at the, what he's pointing at and says, I don't think that's a bear. 
whatever it was, looked, it was bipedal, it was on two legs, carrying something on its shoulder. And the last name of this family was the Keys, referred to as the Key family. And it seemed very bizarre, as if almost whoever or whatever it was was trying to hide behind trees. They could never really get a good, solid look at it, but they could tell that it was, whatever it was, was walking on two legs. So I know what this is really hinting at. It's really pointing to Bigfoot. I don't know that that's what's going on here, but you're going to see that throughout some of these cases. Others, it kind of points to some other stuff. We'll get into that too. But yeah, I get it. I know what that looks like and what it sounds like here. As time goes on, the next day, the Key family sees the headlines in the newspaper about uh, Dennis Martin going missing. And so they contact the FBI and say, hey, we saw something that might be related to this missing child. You know, and... the FBI agent is says, okay, well, that's that's interesting, and and the father offers to go meet the FBI agent where he saw where the, he and his family saw this this figure, and the FBI agent says, nope, I'll come to you or I'll meet you halfway, but refuses to go to the location with the man for some reason, which is a little odd, or seemed a little odd. So there's that. As time goes on, Dennis Martin's father is is getting a little frustrated and, quite frankly, angry because he's not getting any information. He's learning information from the FBI long after they, they discover it, and it's just, he feels like this is being a little bit hush-hush, and things aren't being shared with him. So the first couple days, search efforts, are they're going good, they're expanding. It gets into the thousands of people looking for this boy. Then out of nowhere, the Green Berets show up. Green Berets show up and pretty much take over the whole operation and share zero communication with anyone. And it's really bizarre. They come in, they set up a base. They have like a closed circuit communication going on. It's very, very strange and they're very standoffish and won't let people work with them. They refuse to work with anyone else. And they're only there for five days, and then they're gone. Explain that. They gave no explanation. Seems a little strange to me. Yet another case, a little more recent, in 2006. It took place in Red Lakes Wilderness, which is northern Minnesota. Uh, 38-year-old man. His name was Corey Kelly. And he was going camping, hunting-slash-camping trip with his friend. They get out into the into the, the area in which they're going to camp and hunt, and his buddy says, man, I forgot the gas for the stoves, etc. I've got to go back. I've got to go back. I'm going to leave my dog here with you, and you go ahead and start hunting. They were grouse hunting, but it was a very swampy area. Again, little asterisks there on the swamps. And Corey says, okay, sure, no, no problem. So his, his buddy leaves. Corey assumingly goes to hunt with the dog. His buddy gets back, and Corey's not back yet. The dog's not back yet. So his friend assumes, well, okay, he'll be back soon. He's off hunting. You know, he'll, he'll come back. Corey Kelly is very experienced in the wilderness. He's done this 
a thousand times, this is nothing new to him. Not saying that accidents won't happen to someone experienced. I'm just saying it wasn't odd. At this point, it was not strange. However, as time went on and Corey didn't return, nor did the dog return, his friend starts to honk the horn on their vehicle to try and get his attention, call his name, call his dog's name, to no avail. Corey's gone. He he waits it out all night, assumes maybe, you know, he got on the trail of something. Who knows? But he waits, which I find odd. I don't know that I would do that. I would I would probably go and, and seek help and begin a search right right then. But, again, Corey had been hunting many times, very avid hunter and very avid outdoorsman. So his friend wasn't that worried until, yes, it started getting a little strange that he wasn't back. So he waited till morning, and he finally decides to go and get help. And there's a huge, intensive search that happens. And 14 miles away from their camp, they find Corey's overalls, socks, lighter, his cigarettes, and a sweatshirt. All just kind of strewn about on on the ground, spread out over a trail. And so there was intermittent snow and rain that kept interrupting the search. By the way, it had to be called off numerous times because of weather. And for five days at one point, there was so much snow and rain, there was nothing they can do. After that stopped and things cleared up, there was just a little bit of intermittent rain, and it was it was stopping. So they continue, but 16 miles away from their camp, off 50 feet off a trail in some reeds, they find his body. He's naked, but there's no sign of foul play. I mean, there's no gunshot wounds, stab wounds. He's in good condition. Toxicology reports come back. There's, there was no drugs, no alcohol. So, very strange. However, he'd been there a while. As it turns out, he went all that way, 16 miles, in 12 hours, through this, this terrain, this swampy wilderness, in 12 hours, he went 14 miles. They know this because of the condition of the body, and some hikers actually, after all this was reported in the media, came forward and said, hey, we saw the lighter, the sweatshirt, the cigarettes, all that, the day after he went missing. So those items have been there since the day after he went missing, which means he made that 16-mile trek that night. The night that he went missing. Very strange. Another case that kind of illustrates the elderly going missing. This man we're going to talk about next had some disabilities just simply due to age. He had some really bad knees. His name was Maurice Domitz, and he was 84 years old. This was in 1981. And... He was going topaz hunting. He had a PhD in theology. Uh, very smart, smart intellectual man we're talking about here. So again, this is one of those cases that that particular 
uh, profile point pops up in, in this case. So he's going with a friend of his named David McSweeney. They're going out into the woods to look for topaz. And they, they drive off to Pike National Forest, which is in Colorado. And they get to the park, and they have to drive almost 20 miles down a dirt road until they reach a spot called, appropriately, Topaz Point. Now, Native Americans say that it's haunted by evil spirits. And even early settlers called this place Devil's Head. So, you know, already kind of looking a little bleak. So Maurice could barely walk because he had these really bad knees. And David McSweeney had to help him down this small hill to this spot where they were going to dig for their topaz. But they decided to separate just just by, I think, about 150 yards is what the information I saw. So they're digging for their topaz, doing their thing. David McSweeney decides it's probably time to wrap it up. He walks back over to where Maurice is digging and says, Hey, be ready in about 10 minutes. I'm going to go back to my spot, collect my tools, and we'll go ahead and go. David McSweeney does this. Again, 150 yards away, collects his items, his tools, goes back to collect Maurice to help him up this hill, and Maurice is gone. Now, Maurice could not walk up this hill. There was no way he could do it. It just wasn't possible with the condition of his knees. So his friend David flags down a car and just asks them to, hey, go get some help, go get the police, And he stays behind to continue looking for his friend. Well, they search for five days and find nothing. Nothing. Not a stitch of clothing. No evidence of anything. Foul play. Anything. Animals. Nothing. There was literally nothing to be found. So the police closed this case. Now, David Politis did a small uh. 411, missing 411 documentary about this case and other clusters of cases at Devil's Head, this particular area, and the police reopened Maurice's case. So that's pretty interesting. It's starting to get some traction and get taken a little seriously. So now this next case occurred in 1952, and this one illustrates just the impossibility of the physical evidence, and the where they find this person. And you'll see what I mean. It's a two-year-old boy named Keith Parkins. And he went missing from his home in Oregon, Ritter, Oregon. In the middle of winter, in the dead of winter, he goes missing. He'd been playing outside. He had his jacket on. But he, I mean, it's, it's a jacket. It's not something that, and, you know, he wasn't equipped to be out in this kind of weather for any real length of time. So he goes missing, again, out of nowhere, almost as if within a blink of an eye, his parents turned their back, and he was gone. Just gone. So his family, they they, uh, form this local search party immediately looking for him, and they followed his footprints. So luckily there was snow. They followed his footprints to a point. But then they stopped. His footprints completely stopped. There were no other animal tracks 
near his footprints. There were no other adult footprints nearby. Anywhere. His footprints just stopped. So that's very, very strange. 19 hours later, they find Keith. He's 15 miles away. He has taken his jacket off, and he's laying face down in the snow of a frozen pond. And he was alive. They asked him what happened, and he couldn't remember. So how does a two-year-old boy in the snow, with no jacket, go 15 miles in 19 hours? There are those that call these cases crazy, and we're going to, to be fair, I will talk about what, you know, maybe could be occurring here, that, and it's maybe nothing. Maybe this is nothing at all. But then explain to me how a two-year-old boy goes that far in 19 hours. 15 miles in 19 hours. And I know this was 1952. Maybe our information is uh, wrong. Literally. I don't know. A lot of other cases where this same thing occurs and they're more recent. So, it, I, you know, I don't know. This is another just amazing one to me. In fact, Les Stroud, who, if you don't know who Les Stroud is, he's like this outdoorsman, survival, live-off-the-land expert guy. And he did a segment in a in Missing 411 documentary where he tries to do the same thing as Keith Parkins. Two-year-old boy. And he couldn't do it. He says there's no way a two-year-old boy did this on his own. So if we consider Les Stroud an expert, I don't I don't I'm not too familiar with the man, but if he is, then what what does that tell us? What happened here? It's pretty crazy. I'm going to go over one more case before I talk about one case that, that's a little more uh, recent and very, very strange, kind of in a different way. And you'll see, you'll see what I mean. But th- this next case is that of Jared Adaduro. He and his sister and father, Alan, lived at the resort where Alan worked. And this was a resort in a national park in Colorado called Comanche Wilderness. So in 1999, Jared was three years old, and a, a, a Christian singles group came to stay at the resort. And one of these women who was in this, this group offered to take Alan's kids, Jared and his sister, with them. For just a, just a couple hours at a local fish hatchery. And they never asked Alan if they could take the children hiking. However, once they were out at the hatchery, they saw a sign for a trail. So they go, they decide to go on a hike. And that is where Jared goes missing. Apparently, the woman and the other adults that were part of this Christian singles group were so involved in their own hikes and what they were doing that they lost track of Jared and he wandered off away from the group. Two hikers, two hikers in the area saw him walking alone but unfortunately assumed that, you know, the adults, his parents or whoever he was with were probably close by. And that was the last time Jared was seen. 
In 2003, two hikers are climbing up a very steep rock face. It's about 550 feet above the trail. They find a child's tooth, a single tooth, a piece of skull, and Jared's clothes, which were fully intact. However, his clothes were turned inside out. And there was one shoe. One shoe which looked brand new. And the reason is, is because it was brand new. Those He had gotten a pair of brand new shoes when he went missing. Shortly before he went missing. And he was wearing those. So, four years later, we have a piece of his skull, a single tooth, and a single shoe with no signs of weathering after four years in this environment. Same with the clothes. No signs of weathering and no blood. There are those that say this was an animal attack. There are no tears in the clothes. There are no blood stains on the clothes. And where are the rest of the remains? And how did, if he walked off on his own, how did he climb this cliff? How did his remains get there? There's an untold story here. So I think it's very bizarre. And, you know, something's happening, obviously. You know, this is, this is very strange, to say the least. Uh, now, the area where his remains were found... I mean, if, if you were to ask a, a three-year-old child to scale this, this rock face, they couldn't do it. The thing is, I don't believe his body was there for four years because it would have been seen or found. The evidence, the, the tooth, the skull, the clothes, and the shoe that were found weren't there since his disappearance. I assume people climb this rock wall often. It would have been found sooner. It was four years before it was found. Where was it before that? And how did it get to the place where it was found on this rock wall? It just doesn't add up. It, it doesn't line up with a bear or cougar attack again because the clothes would have been torn to pieces. So we don't know the answer to this one. And I'm going to talk about one more case that's a little more recent and a little, it's very strange, but it's a little different than these others. Um, and then I, you know, I'm, I'm pushing my time here, but I want to run, I run, I want to talk about what could be going on here. And is this, is there something happening that we should be paying attention to? Or, or is there something else going on? So this next one is, is really, really, really strange and doesn't, I, I don't know, it doesn't seem to really fit the 411 profile points, but it's very strange and interesting, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to include it. It's, it's considered a missing 411 case, so we're going to go with it. Happened in 2018 in February. A Canadian man, his name was Danny Philippitis, and he goes on a ski trip with his friends in New York. And early afternoon, they had been skiing for hours. Took all morning, went out early, skiing for hours. Early afternoon, 
They get ready to wrap it up and go back to the lodge, and Danny tells his friends, you know, hey, I want to do one more run. I want to do one more go down the mountain before we have lunch, and I'll, I'll come right back. So his friends say, sure, no problem. Around 4 o'clock, Danny's not returning text messages. He's not returning phone calls. His friends are starting to get a little worried. So they go out and they search for him. They cannot find him anywhere. So they're, they're clueless as to what happened, but they're very, very concerned, very nervous. And so they go back to the lodge and they talk to some of the employees and say, hey, our friend is missing. Soon a team of 130 people are on the mountain. And they're looking, but they don't find him anywhere. Six days later, Philippides' wife gets a phone call. And she doesn't recognize the number. And it sounded very staticky and almost, almost far in the distance. A very, very broken signal is happening here. But it was Danny's voice. He was very incoherent, he was very confused, and he actually hung up the phone. So she calls the number back. He picks up and says, hey, you've got to call 911 for help. You've got to get some help. So he does this. He had no idea where he was. And all he could do was describe where he was at, what his surroundings looked like. And when the paramedics finally find him, He's still wearing all of his ski gear. He's in need of some medical attention. But he's holding a brand new iPhone and someone has cut his hair. (laughs) This is very strange. I don't know what to make of it. So somehow, now remember, let's, let's backtrack a little bit. He's skiing with friends in New York. Somehow... He ends up in Sacramento, California. He's in an airport terminal at a rental car depot. He was 3,000 miles away from where he disappeared. He couldn't remember how he got there. He had no idea what day it was. And he had no idea how long people were looking for him. This was very shocking to him, very emotional. It really kind of messed with his head as it would anybody so one of the theories outside of the 411 realm is that he was that he was just kidnapped for some unknown reason for whatever reason there wasn't like there was there's this whole idea of harvesting organs on the black for the black market and things like that but there was there would be evidence of that The only thing was this brand new iPhone and a haircut. So strange. So strange. But luckily, he was alive and did make it back to his loved ones. So what is going on here? What is happening? We have a man, Mr. David Politis, who is telling us that there are these clusters or patterns in national forests and national parks in which people go missing under these weird profile points and these weird circumstances. It appears to be true. Now, I'm just going to say personally, I believe something is going on here. I don't know what it is, 
but I believe that there is something happening here. But again, to be fair, we've got to look at the other side of the coin. David Politis, I believe he believes something is going on here. And when you ask him, when he's been asked what he thinks this is, he will not say. Which, I've, I've read comments in various YouTube threads and Reddit, and oh, he, he won't talk about it, it's frustrating. Look, why should he talk about what he thinks it is? It's going to show up or imply a bias of some sort. He presents evidence and says, this is what we know. Think of the, the berry bushes and the berry picking. He has said, I don't know, but it happens a lot, so I note it. And that's fair. David Plytus is not some fly-by-night investigator that's, that's writing books on a whim or anything like that. This man is an investigator. I believe he has put in the time. He's a smart guy. I think he started out with six plus thousand cases and narrowed it down to 1,200 for the first book. And even weeded some of those out. And now, of course, as time goes on, he's found more. This is a global thing, by the way. It's not just in the States. So I believe something's going on. However, again, in fairness, could this be just a really, really great example of confirmation bias? Confirmation bias, when he's investigating something, you know, animal attacks, for example, could happen and you find the remains later and there's just so much decomposition that the evidence is gone or, and I'm not an expert, I know that that there's marks on bones after an attack due to the you know, teeth marks on bones from an attack, but I don't, I, you know, maybe some of these older cases where back in the 1800s or early 1900s where we just didn't have the technology we have nowadays to say, well, this, yes, this was an animal attack. This particular one was, but yet that, that one might get grouped into what's considered one of his clusters. So Politis assumes, well, this, we're going to, we're going to put this one into the group. And how many times does that happen? So maybe that could be happening. I, I don't know. It seems certainly possible. Confirmation bias is a real thing. It does happen often with all of us, I believe. But I think there's something going on here. What could it be? Well, let's just go with the first one, Bigfoot. There are those that believe that Bigfoot is somehow very stealthily taking people in the woods and moving away without a sound, and that's, that's it. But then there's the weather phenomena, which there are so many cases, I just don't have time, but this, it occurs. It's very bizarre. There is the finding victims, deceased or alive, in areas that have already been searched. This one is a big one. for. This is very common. Then there's finding victims in areas where they physically couldn't have gotten to in the amount of time they got there. Why are they missing their shoes? And I understand that, especially with hyperthermia, in the late stages of hyperthermia, you remove clothing. That can happen. Why does it happen in areas where 
the temperatures didn't get that low to where hypothermia would even begin. So there's all these questions, and I believe that Mr. Politis has addressed all these. And I don't know, it's just so weird. Check out the books. Check out the documentaries. It's a, it's a fascinating subject. It's a little disturbing. But man, something's happening here. Another explanation <laughs> is, is, as always, aliens. These are abductions. There are some stories from children where, and this was a common theme with some children over many, many years, where they would claim when they were found alive, where did you go? And they would say, well, I stayed with a bear. I Literally, I cuddled up next to a bear. One of the stories I heard was the bear was also a robot. Now, we're talking about children here, three, four years old, so you kind of have to make room for that, the imagination. But this bear theme comes up a lot, and one, one little boy said, I hid from the helicopters. Now, helicopters were used in his search, but not on the first night in which he refers. So, all these things, very strange. That's it for this one. There's plenty, plenty more to talk about on this topic, but I think I'm at like 50 minutes now or something. Want to keep it relatively short, under an hour to an hour. So, this was a really crazy one to do. I like to go hiking. I love the national forests around me. But it kind of makes you think, oh, I don't know. But no, I'm still going to hike. Still going to do all those things. This was a good one. I encourage you to just rabbit hole it. Look it up. It's fascinating. David Politis has done a lot of work. And it's very, very interesting information. So, hey, thanks again for joining me for episode 18. I really appreciate you sticking with me. If you've stuck in this long, it was, again, it was a very interesting one to do. Tune in next week. We're going to talk about shadow people. That's right, shadow people. What are they? Are they a hallucination? And, you know, there's some commonalities that occur with shadow people across the world. Very, very, very interesting things. So thanks again for tuning in, and as always, be well. <laughs>